Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Uh, Adam, did you see the promo for uh, Mayor Kem's crash sale on Twitter today? Oh man, that's it's epic. It was right up there with the uh, Killers of the Flower Moon trailer. It's... Uh... <laughs> I'd a 95 on, on tomatoes if I was if I had that power. Because it was, it was really good. I, I was wondering, should we go on a field trip or? Uh, I don't want to get up at eight o'clock on a Saturday to go to the garage sale. That's that's somebody else's life. Um, <laughs> of course, Maybe I'm sure TV Kitchener will be covering it. Uh, you never know, right? You, you, know, I, you know, it isn't. That's an interesting point. I, I will say that somewhere. In Guelph right now, there's somebody who's like, this is what he's doing instead of like <laughs> governing our cities, making trailers for his garage sale. But I digress. Kemp's uh, been pretty busy this week. Uh, open Sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show. You can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And sometimes we interview local newsmakers and politicians. Which this week will be Drew Spolstra, who is the Vice President of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. He is a legitimate ass farmer, because uh, I talked to him on his tractor. Uh, but he's going to talk to us about the pressures on farmland here in Ontario, including the provincial government's scramble to deal with the housing crisis and new legislation making it easier to develop that sweet, sweet agricultural land. That's going to be at the bottom of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about a few a few news items from the last week, including the rapporteur, David, I just love saying rapporteur, uh, <laughs> David Johnston's, uh, he did not recommend a public inquiry into Chinese election interference, but he did manage to unite the country into hating his decision, and we'll talk about that. But first, uh, Alberta election was Monday. Uh, surprise, the NDP won. It was only a moral victory, but they still won, even though they didn't get the most number of seats. Um, <laughs> let's do the numbers really quick here. Uh, the UCP uh, won. Uh, they won 52.6% of the popular vote. That's a little less than 927,000 votes in all, uh, compared to the NDP, who got 44%, with a little over 776,000 votes. Independents across Alberta were pretty much shut out. 3.4% of the total popular vote went to independents. So how this breaks down, 49 seats for the UCP, which is five more than they needed to form a government. That is down from 60 in 2019. NDP got 38 seats, which is up from 15, but six shy from forming government. Uh, so all in all, voter turnout, 62.4%, which is actually less than 2019, but uh, more than it, more than it was here in Ontario last fall, but um, significantly or, or pointedly less than the nearly 70% in 2019. And uh, yeah, so uh, Premier Daniel Smith, uh, four more years. Discuss. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and as usual, something like a million people didn't vote, mm -hmm. which would mm -hmm. have made a difference in some of the writings that were squeakers, let's call them, super close, particularly mm -hmm. yeah. Tyler Shandro losing by seven. Yeah. Which will, it's going to be a recount. I think their recount cutoff is a hundred. Yeah, there are automatic recounts uh, if the, the vote is low enough, yeah. And I was wondering if he was you know, doing the 
the election was stolen from me kind of thing. <laughs> hashtag stop the steal <laughs> but it just like the way this was presented i followed cbc not as much from the uh, the alberta elections website but cbc just had the two parties listed and that, that seemed different to me in that it makes it seem like let's call them the fringe uh and they're mm. like it's super fringe it's not just low like the votes were like 0.7% for the independents, 07 for the Alberta party. I think the Greens were the highest at something like 14,000 votes, which was not 8% of the vote, but 0.8. Mm-hmm. So the two-party structure just was not only presented throughout the whole election, it was, all, it was all that they focused on. However, I mean, some of those, those squeaker writings, as I called them in Calgary, <laughs> of which there was six... Mm-hmm. Had those swung a slightly different way, mm-hmm. as in if all six of them had gone NDP, mm-hmm. and he would have been the government. That's how close this was. That's what they're talking about in terms of, oh, it's it's such it's such a close race. Even though the UCP won the majority, you know, realistically, one stats person put up the number. It was something like twenty six hundred votes. Mm-hmm. If, that, if those votes had gone a different way in six writings, it would have been an NDP majority. So you have to say to yourself, you know, is this a resounding, you know, Daniel Smith made it out as you do when you win a quote majority that, you know, it's like <laughs> we have a mandate, but yet, and I'm sure you heard this today, Adam, the, uh, because they were shut out, the UCP were shut out completely in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Daniel Smith has posited something about having a council of the defeated, I'm not sure if that's an official name because it's going to be like, well, Edmonton won't have any say because we don't have any seats there. It's like, well, there are seats there. They're just from the other party. Like, isn't that how it's supposed to work? Your MLA that you elected is the person that you consult, not this. It's not even like a shadow portfolio because you're the government. It's like, it's going to be shadow MLAs. I've never heard of such a thing. So it just seemed, you know, the, the ridiculousness. That was predicted and that we've Mm -hmm. seen from Daniel Smith continues, as you said, for, well, four years now. Well, I mean, it's not that (laughs) unusual. You know, Justin Trudeau had like a, after the 2019 uh, election appointed like a prairie ambassador because there were no liberals and MPs in uh, Alberta. (laughs) Yeah, they had a prairie rapporteur pretty much. Um but yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it comes across as a little city. I mean, uh, a little silly, you, you know, um, looking at the map of Calgary, the separation of ridings, it's, I mean, it's pretty orange. It's it's not as orange as it needed to be to win the day. I mean, there was one riding in, I think it was Calgary Northwest that it was like 149 votes uh, difference. If 149 more people came out and supported the NDP, that might be a different story. But uh I mean, they they have a city problem. It's the the UCP, no doubt. Um, that's I mean, I I wonder how much influence the um the whole arena thing playing in Calgary, whether that might have changed a few minds. Um, but yeah, it 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 is interesting when you look at that when you look at the map far out. It looks like the whole province is blue. You have to yep. zoom in. To see, you know, Calgary and Edmonton, and see those orange uh, blotches. It's, it, I mean, that's that's going to be a serious question for. It's going to be a serious question for Dan- Daniel Smith. 
two, um, I saw a political cartoon that had her uh, picking up a book that said like, I, I can't remember exactly what it said. It was something to the effect of like big book of stupid things to say. And she, and she <laughs> she's picking it up and saying, well, where did I leave off? Um, that's, <laughs> that's not necessarily untrue. The question I think, I mean, I'm, I'm almost surprised we haven't heard anything about Rachel Notley um, being pressured or, you know, getting pressure to step down because from a, a lot of like local commentators, people who, you know, cover Alberta politics, it seems to be like the fault is on her. They focused on too much on Daniel Smith, um, pointing at Daniel Smith and saying, isn't this woman kooky? Isn't she crazy? Doesn't she do like stupid things and, you know, like talk about coming to the defense of, you know, convoy people? Isn't that stupid? Instead of like presenting an, an alternative vision of uh, what an NDP government would do for the province or reversely doing anything to combat the messaging that, you know, the four years there was an NDP government in Alberta were lost years. Um, it's, you know, I think there are going to be a lot of serious questions about how badly the NDP couldn't, I mean, because feeling a complete and total collapse of oil prices, which, you know, contributed to the, the you know, Jim Prentice's loss in 2015, along with, you know, vote splitting on the right, you can't, undermine that but you know especially the collapse of oil prices this mm -hmm. was the best chance i'm not a hundred percent sure and this may be like a prediction that just goes like flits into the wind but i'm not sure you can be a hundred percent sure that daniel smith's going to be the leader in four years <laughs> given some of the stuff that's already gone down in like the first six months of her, of her premiership and so the ndp i i i just it i feel like it's got to ask some serious questions about like how could we not get one over on this silly person who is on the record saying, you know what? Maybe it's not such a bad idea that people get out their credit card when they go to the ER. Maybe they'll think twice about, you know, taking care of, <laughs> you know, taking care of themselves if they have to pay for their health care. It's, it's, it seems bizarre. Yeah. And completely forgetting that the internet is forever. Yeah. So all of that got trotted out and it, it did make a bit of a dent, I think, but the, the NDP had a super, significant uh, rise in the, their number of seats, right? Well, you said mm. it was 60 to 23, and then the shift was to 49 to 38. Mm -hmm. So they had an increase. So it, I would think if they lost that, like if that went down, if it went down from 23 seats, Notley would have been gone for sure. Yeah. But in this instance, it's, you know, the logic, I guess, is supposed to be, well, we will be a strong opposition. How strong? Who knows? And uh, you, you mentioned oil prices. I mean, this right out of the gate, Smith's promising to reduce taxes, mm -hmm. right? And all mm -hmm. of that is when you when you base your budget on the value of West Texas crude, which is what they do in Alberta. It doesn't matter what the party is, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it is going down. You know, the slump is on. Uh, that's it. It kind of renders moot your your approach or your plan, mm -hmm. or do you even have one? That's the thing. It's it's shaky. Right. It's it, it's shaky grounds, mm -hmm. even though you can you can put out as many. Well, I love oil and gas bumper stickers you like and whatever, but it, it's it's not going to fix it. So, that's yeah, one of the questions that remains to be seen. But as you said, I, I, I can't see her hanging in for four years, considering how many conservatives came out and supported Notley, mm -hmm. which I've never seen that. Mm hmm. It might have happened on occasion. I can't think off the top of my head, but there was there was like 
every few days somebody was getting trotted out conservative former conservative but you know it's still conservative like whether they were a seated mla or whatever saying no i think we should back notley i mean that is huge right right so did the the majority voters kind of you know wince a little bit and say well you know we'll we'll elect them hoping that smith goes or maybe is she going to be you know brought down a bit brought under control by the greater ucp machine i don't know that remains to be seen but well i mean will she because because you know the alternative is and i I, you know jeremy apple who um you know covers alberta politics made this point it's like it's the same make they they, the same mistake they keep making in the united states where you know they keep pointing at people like marjorie taylor green or donald trump or you know any of these people like look how crazy this person is and the people who support them are like yeah we like crazy um and and i think it's like there's a similar thing happening with daniel smith uh yeah she lost all kind of like the sensible minded conservatives like the fiscal conservative types who don't like the crazy but her base now are the crazies so can she like moderate herself without risking losing on to the people who supported her this far? That's a big question mark that I, I think, you know, it, it, the whole thing reminded me of 20, 2018 Ontario where Doug Ford becomes the PC leader like six months before the election. And um people are looking at andrew horvath like you know you can do it this is it this is your chance and she just yeah she increased the votes yeah and she increased the number of seats but she couldn't get the king or in this case the queen and i just i i, I can't help but feel like people are going to be looking at notley the same way there, there was this controversy that they had like a former airbnb lobbyist who was like essentially managing the campaign except no one on the ndp side would admit it hmm. uh, <laughs> and you know you have somebody who's from airbnb you know, managing your campaign, an NDP campaign in the middle of a housing crisis, nationwide housing crisis, you know, that doesn't look good. And then Apple's other point was like, they're going to take the exact wrong lessons of this, which was the NDP were too liberal. They were too woke. They were too progressive in this race. <laughs> and it's like in this NDP party, Alberta, it's never been woke, but that's going to be the lesson because that's what the media is going to tell them. They were too woke, too progressive for um hard ass right wing alberta and um i just i i I don't i i I, it just it seems like the horvath movie all over again and um you you know that's the messaging coming from the take back alberta yeah who are this kind of shadowy group that are not propping up the ucp the majority now but they're there and it it, it's going to be interesting to see how much influence they have mm-hmm. directly it may be like smith will be considered a traitor like she was when she took the wild roses and went to uh over to the conservatives eff- effectively creating the ucp or what became the ucp right there was that the mass yeah. defection yeah and then when wild roses are, are still around but they're they wiped out right so mm-hmm. all of the energy has gone to the ucp now with take back alberta i'm not sure among others but that how that plays out is is going to be something to watch for sure because right does that scale up to the canadian level because we know pierre polyev loves 
Daniel Smith and they all love Ron DeSantis. I wonder if that trade deal with Florida that she was riffing about is going to happen now. Yeah. (laughs) There was that super cut about how much she sounds like she really loves Ron DeSantis. You know, Ron DeSantis, it kept, it was like this, I'm like, I thought you maybe said it (sighs) once or twice. It was over and over again. It's like, this is your, this is your hero. This is your guy. That alone would have turned some votes, but obviously not enough to to keep her out. It's it's a little bizarre. The whole take back Alberta thing is is going to be like the thing to watch because there are some big questions that Press Progress have been asking about. Like, well, they're you know they're listed as a third party advertiser, but they're not showing any fundraising. They're not showing where they've gotten money or how much money they've gotten, and. Um, you know, meanwhile, TBA is putting on, you know, um, y- you know, in- training sessions for scrutineers and they're, you know, having Jordan Peterson come out to Red Deer for, uh, you know, to, to tell everyone why an NDP government's going to suck because, you know, uh, you want the political expertise of a U of T, uh, U of T psychology professor to talk about Alberta politics. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. there's there's going to be some questions, uh, uh, hopefully loud questions about like who is funding that because yeah, it's it's a test trial, uh, it, or a, a trial balloon about what might happen in the next uh, federal election. Speaking of which, um, previous federal elections, uh, we've been trying to get to the bottom. Well, not us, but other people have been trying to get to the bottom of this Chinese interference. In the last two federal elections, David Johnson was the man handpicked for the job. He released a report last week that said uh, he's not recommending a public inquiry. He is ever going to, however, going to have public hearings with uh, affected communities to uh, better understand what kind of effect uh, the interference might have had uh, locally. Uh, that's not good enough for pretty much all the opposition parties who are right now voting for a I guess a largely symbolic motion to politely ask David Johnson to resign <laughs> until Parliament can all agree on someone to do the job better in a public inquiry. So that's where, in in short, that's where we are, um, which is another way of saying we're pretty much nowhere understanding what any of this is about. Oh, yeah. And I didn't actually realize that the position would was like six months it's supposed to carry on for a period and i guess within that period is going to be these these quasi public inquiries i'm not sure what they're officially calling it it's like let's have some just a public process or something let's have these mm-hmm. discussions about what's going on mm-hmm. and it, it's it's not often that the ndp and the tories are singing from the same song sheet which is what's going on now, but they're obviously not singing in harmony. And the, the you know the key difference in this is Jagmeet Singh's approach is you know this motion calling for Johnson to step aside. It's not coming from the Tories, although they're backing it. Mm-hmm. But the, the the difference is, as we know, it's it's poly of the, the negativity that comes out of this just and attacking uh, Johnson personally mm-hmm. is he is a super qualified individual. Mm-hmm. He has way more qualifications than Polyev will ever have in his life. <laughs> and th- but that's not that is obviously not the problem. Mm-hmm. Um he probably was the wrong pick for this just because of the you know the ties that the, the, the Tories are hammering on, particularly with the Trudeau Foundation and how there there is a, some kind of relationship between Trudeau. I don't know how deep. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Tori's like, oh, they're buddies. Um, that may be, but it's it's a limited pool, right? Somebody that's mm-hmm. been the governor general, and that was mentioned too. It's like, okay, somebody that was the you know the vice regal, <laughs> should they really be the person for this? Because as we know, governor generals, lieutenant governors, queen's representative, king's representative now don't really do the dig, right? They're supposed mm-hmm. to be not apolitical, but just removed from the the nuts and bolts of the thing. Right? Mm-hmm. Unless mm-hmm. unless called upon to to intervene, so that and that was actually discussed on the agenda the other day. I thought that was a pretty interesting way to put it, rather than saying Joe Johnson's. You know, that's not a rapporteur is not a real thing. It is a real thing, but it comes <laughs> from the United Nations. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been a real thing in the Canadian sphere, and I don't know if that was part of the intention was to make make this a third a fourth, I don't know, some other option rather than just calling the public inquiry, which most people now are saying, just just do it. Yeah. <laughs> you should probably just do this now because it's the liberals versus the rest of the world on this. Yeah, it's, I mean, that was kind of where we were going with all this from the jump is that, you know, they're trying to find a way out of doing a public inquiry. And it, I mean, that didn't work. That was never going to work. I do understand the nature of, you know, you're talking about high-level intelligence, top-secret intelligence, sources and methods, which you don't want to divulge, how you get this information, and, you know, maybe um, th- th- this is kind of one of those things that falls out the outside the parameters of, you know, you, public inquiry. It, the whole idea of a public inquiry is to make it all public. So, I mean, I don't know what the you know technically speaking where where they would have to draw the lines of things what do you make public what do you make uh what 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 do you not make public uh the drips and drabs though is certainly not helping i think we have uh ndp mp uh, jenny kwan talking about how she was a target uh of this influence campaign aaron o'toole gets up and says like ceases told him that he's still likely going to be target even when he's not in parliament anymore which is kind of mm-hmm. weird why would you waste your time <laughs> or yeah. why why have you been wasting your time lately you know going after O'Toole but uh yeah it's there is definite demand there's definite desire to get to the answer to this again we were kind of joking about this off air but you know just a little while before we're recording here Pierre Polivier is posting a tweet with that video of that kid letting off a firework on a TTC bus saying like this is Justin Trudeau's candidate it's like is it? I don't know how. Did Justin Trudeau sell him the fireworks? Um, you know, so <laughs> you have these serious issues, but you have someone who's like completely unserious, like Pierre Polivare, leading the charge. And on top of all, he never met with Johnson. He appointedly refused to meet with Johnson. It's like you may be sitting there thinking Johnson's corrupt. There's really no proof of that. He was, yeah, he did some work with the Trudeau Foundation, but find me someone who didn't. Peter Lockheed was on the board of the Trudeau Foundation one time. So Peter Lockheed was on the board of the Trudeau Foundation one time. I had to say it twice. Um, you know, th- th- he wouldn't meet with Johnson. He refused to meet with Johnson. It's like you may think Johnson's not the guy for the job to put it charitably, but come on, you're like you're so boiled up about this, you're not going to meet the guy who was put in charge, whether you think he was qualified or, or you think it was appropriate or not. Come on, what you're the, what you're saying to me as a voter is that you don't really want to get to the bottom of this. You want to use it as a cudgel mm-hmm. for as long as you can. And the question is, I, the this is I think this is a question for Trudeau. What happens if you give them a public inquiry? What are they going to do? Right? 
meet the demand. Say like, okay, mm-hmm. we'll do the public inquiry. We'll have a you know a unanimous vote in parliament to appoint the person. Give me some names. Let's do it. What's going to happen? I'd love to find out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the trend for this kind of thing was always to use retired Supreme Court justices. And mm-hmm. there's a long article. I think it was in McLean's about how this was. How Sounds these right. things were normally dealt with, right? You just find somebody that has equivalent experience of somebody like Johnson and can do it. And they're supposed to be supposed supposedly neutral. Now that wouldn't matter in, in Polyev's case. He would find something to nag on for that person, whatever it was. It didn't necessarily have to be what your political leanings were, or who you're associated with, or who you go skiing with. He would find something and just go wah, wah, wah about it. Because that's that's his style. That's what yeah, he does. Yeah. And yeah. it's really, really annoying. And it doesn't solve anything. There's a lot. I mean, they keep citing, you know, privacy concerns in the name of intelligence, like keeping that under wraps. But I mean, there's a lot they could discuss procedurally, like who leaked all of the stuff. Right. And now, right. granted, it needed to be leaked. This stuff needs to be out there. But it's like, why is it so bad that somebody on the inside feels that they need to link or leak the intel? Um, you know, this various other security issues could be discussed without but I, you know maybe the concern is that they'll they'll get people on the stand as happened and they'll say well due to privacy concerns it's like everybody was like well because this you know the case is before the courts i can't really discuss it mm-hmm. opt out you know it's it's a way of weaseling out of having to give a, a concrete answer um so they could do that but Public inquiries would seem to be the best form for this, and you know the liberals are going to resist it as long as possible. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think if it's, I did I mishear or was was this um, what Singh is putting forward? Was it going to be a confidence motion? I know he was saying that none of this is going to affect the current confidence and supply agreement, but I no, guess I don't potentially. Think it's like- no, it's Could not- it potentially be made into a confidence motion, or maybe not? Is it all just symbolic stuff, like the one in back in March was just like? Well, I mean, there's no real consequences. Like they're like David, they like, could pass it, and David Johnson could say, "No, I'm fine. Thanks, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for checking in, <laughs> but I'm fine." You know, it's. <laughs> I'm staying on. Yeah, I mean, that's that's ultimately what's going to happen is he's going to be like, oh, "Well, it's so sweet of you guys to like check in with me and see if I'm like doing okay." <laughs> but yeah. no, I'm I'm doing great. I'm I'm just I'm really digging into this stuff, and all my people are bringing me new info. And yeah, it's great. But I'm rapporteuring know, with the best of them. I'm rapporteuring like you wouldn't believe over here. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's silly at the end of the day. It's like I mean, and the the, the, the unfortunate thing is, like, it's these are deeply serious issues. Like people are at people are under threat. Yeah. And by the way, there's a whole community of people at stake. There are whole communities of Asian people, not just the you know uh, people of Chinese descent or Chinese immigrants, but like all kinds of Asian people. Because you know what, uh, the racists who were you know attacking Asian people during the pandemic don't discriminate between who's korean and who's japanese and who's chinese and who's filipino so you know it's there is a level of sensitivity to this um, it was 1923 not 2023 sometimes I know, yeah i know and you know it's and that's not to say too that people's careers already haven't been ruined over this like hey have you heard from han dong lately uh or uh who was it at the the provincial level ontario oh, i can't remember his name but you know they're you know, there have been politicians who've like lost a step and, you know, they may still have their 
their government job. But, you know, there's a big question here whether or not they're, you know, they, they have a political future because some report somewhere attached two things together and, you know, we're, we're living in this intelligence fog. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it, this is like deep, this is a deeply serious thing that I think I, I worry that our politicians aren't taking it seriously. Um, we're going to leave that there and we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it's going to be farmland talk with Drew Spolstra of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. You are listening to Open Source Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And that's number 11 on the current CFRU chart. The album's called Uncertain Country from the Great Lakes Swimmers. The song is Quiet Before the Storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's been pretty stormy for uh, some of our farming friends in the last few weeks. There's a bill currently working its way in the Ontario legislature. I assume hopefully they're going to, well, maybe not hopefully, depending on how it goes, but that it's, it might get passed before the House rises, I believe, next week. Uh, the group of uh, Ontario farmers and farming associations and uh, different groups related to farming released a joint statement a couple of weeks ago that said that this bill, Bill 97, was a threat to the viability of Ontario's farmland, mostly having to do with separating portions of the land and creating smaller bits that you can then sell to developers and then build housing on. Uh Obviously, this is of concern to our farmers who make their living from that land. And so we wanted to get a little bit more information and get the farming perspective and why uh, they're concerned about this bill, what they're doing to fight it. It does seem like there's been movement in the last couple of days to try and mitigate some of the changes that the farmers groups were concerned about. So we're going to talk about that with Drew Spolstra, who is the vice president of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture, and he is a real-life farmer, because wow, wow, I did the interview with him from his tractor in the middle of his field today, and uh, he's uh, a farmer based just outside Hamilton. Uh, he has a dairy farm, and he also raises wheat and hay and uh, a couple other things, so he's a very busy man who gave us some of his time to talk about his concerns and the OFA's concerns about Bill 97, and I guess also just some general concerns about the future of farming here in Ontario. So we're going to hit play on that interview starting right now. Okay, Drew Spolstra, thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, and just so people are aware, because uh, uh, we are radio, uh, you are joining us from your tractor. You are a real life Ontario farmer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm sitting here in the tractor. Uh... It's taking a few minutes. It is uh, it is air conditioned here, so I've got a nice uh, nice cool spot to sit down and chat with you. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, I want to start from the beginning. Um, at least on so far as Bill ninety seven goes. Um, for people who may not be aware of 
even that the fact that uh, that bill does have uh, components that do affect farmland in Ontario, um, this joint statement that was released through the OFA and, uh, you know, included, you know, about a dozen different farming organizations. What what were some of the issues that were that concerned you guys enough to sort of team up and, and petition uh, the government and, and reach out to the, the public about your concerns? Yeah, well, I think the bill itself, uh, Bill 97, is, you know, it's labeled, uh, I think, support for tenants and and renters. And I think there's uh, a lot of good things in that bill uh, with regards to those things. I think the other thing it does is uh, enable some changes to the provincial policy statement. And that's really where uh, we took issue with with a few of the uh, items in that PPS. There, uh, there were some changes to severance policies. Uh, that was really one of the big ticket items that, uh, as you mentioned, we got together with some of our commodity partners and, and talked about uh, some of those issues around severances. Uh, it's something that we see as detrimental to um, farmland and, and the farms going forward into the future and their ability to expand and, uh, and grow, specifically around livestock operations. Mm. Um there, there are some things that we can support there. There's, uh, you know, some additional on-farm housing uh, options, you know, for the next generation or the previous generation or um, workers on the farm. Those are, those are some good steps. But the severances were really, uh, really the key to that discussion. A few other things, um, you know, that we kind of flagged uh, as part of the consultation around the PPS were um, some changes to the wording in the PPS about uh, protecting farmland, uh, protecting mm. specialty crop areas and prime ag lands, uh, some changes around agricultural systems mapping uh, and the need for the municipality to focus more on that instead of the province. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a few other things around employment lands and and uh, and things like that. But uh, the main focus and, and the main effort and drive behind uh, connecting with our commodity partners was around that severance piece. And, um, you know, we were able to have a couple of good meetings last week with some uh, senior staff and, and the premier's office and, and uh, sort of get some of those things hammered out. And um, we're, we're certainly really appreciative of uh, the time that they spent with us and, uh, you know, the ability to pull back on those severance pieces. Can you talk about why the severance um, portion of this is is is, is an issue? Because I think that the the way it was described in in the media release um, and and in some of the other interviews I've seen is that it's kind of designed to make development easier from the housing end, but it makes things more complicated. Say if you or you know one of your neighbors wanted to expand their their farming operations, or for new people to get into farming, is is that fair? Yeah, I think certainly there are uh, opportunities there when it comes to severances. You know, if they if they had to move forward for for certain operations for landowners uh, in particular, but when it comes to the farm perspective, I mean, we're we're doing our best to uh, look out into the future and and try and uh, see what those unintended consequences are, and really uh, you know try and hammer down on what some of the negative effects are uh, going forward. So, you know, if uh, I mentioned it in one of the meetings that we had that uh, we're we're about to build a new dairy barn. If uh, if we were going to sever three lots off the front of this farm, um, that limits our 
our ability to build that barn where we want to build it because of minimum distance separation rules. Mm-hmm. And really, uh, you know, it, it sterilizes this farm property from from livestock growth in the future between the, between the MDS, um, you know, the MDS challenges between houses, uh, you know, across certain parts of the farm and then other natural features and other things, uh, other places where you can't build on a property, uh, it creates a lot of challenges. So um, those are some of the, the key things that we talked about um, within those meetings and, and with our commodity partners as well. And um, really just trying to set up agriculture uh, and livestock agriculture for the, the long-term uh, sustainable future. So it, it is this friction between sort of like the short term, like the government and, and, you know, this isn't an indictment on their thinking at all, but they're trying to do anything and everything to find solutions to housing as opposed to a, a lot of issues around farming and agriculture, which also have to take into account sort of these long term options. You, you, you're kind of thinking in the next decades or thinking in the next few years. Yeah, look, I think we're trying to do um, do our part on the for the housing crisis and make sure that you know we're identifying that that housing is an issue certainly in, in urban Ontario, but as well as rural Ontario. Um, you know, we need we know that we need more people in rural rural hubs and communities as well to to support our labor network and to support um, you know other things going on in rural Ontario communities, things like that. So, um, you know, we're doing our best to. Uh, to identify those challenges, but yeah, I think I think your assessment there is uh, is accurate. That uh, you know, you know add, adding three more residences or five more residences to every farm property, sure, it's a part of the solution. But mm. uh, you know, when we we look at agriculture going forward, um, we need to ensure that those farms can remain viable and productive, and and uh, have the ability to do what they need to do in terms of expanding operations or, or, um, you know, just continuing, uh, normal farm practices and things like that. And we know when there's, there's houses up against uh, the boundary line and, and things like that, uh, it certainly creates a lot of challenges and, and potential for friction down the road. Um, I happen to farm in the Hamilton area and mm. we have one of the, uh, the higher amounts of, of retirement lots or you know uh, farm severances in the past and uh, mm. i've lived with this stuff all my life so mm. um, you know i farm up against and behind a lot of houses uh, a lot of neighboring uh, challenges we'll say lots of them are great um, we have other challenges where you know people are throwing stuff over the fence or um, <laughs> or they're trespassing in some cases i mean every time uh someone moves out to the country, the first thing they do is go and grab a four-wheeler and, uh, <laughs> because, you know, the field in their backyard is their playground in some cases, not everyone, but, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, it does become a challenge and, you know, we're, we're growing crops and we're, we're housing livestock and, and uh, there's a lot of money involved, uh, a lot of time and a lot of uh, effort put into farming practices every year. So there's uh, certainly a lot of challenges and with incompatible uses and, uh, we want to make sure that we're continuing to grow and expand in areas that are, are ripe for it and um, that we're protecting as much prime ag land for sure as possible and specialty crop land as well. And I know that the here in the Guelph area, the Wellington County uh, Agricultural Group was specifically, they went to the, the county council and said that they're worried about 
um, the population boom in rural areas um, because, uh, you know, you get too many people in a rural area where there's a mix of like maybe some exurban areas and farms. Uh, you need places to put those people. And if, you know, a lot of the land is farmland, um, you know, you're talking about essentially choices between housing people and um, having that that extra land for for food or grazing or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think, uh, you know, part of the challenges with rural municipalities, too, is that they just don't have the infrastructure available uh, to support the uh, additional houses up and down rural roads. Um, you know, every every one of these lot services is likely would would have been likely to be on uh, septic and, and well water. Right. Uh, every one of these severances is going to have an additional entrance off the road. Um, you know, mail, garbage pickup, everything else to, to go along with it. So um, there's certainly a lot to be said for, um, you know, building density, building building up instead of out, uh, better intensification. And that goes for rural hubs and communities as well, not just uh, urban centers across Ontario. I know that the Ontario Farmland Trust says that uh, there's about 319 acres of farmland that are, are lost every day. Um I don't know if that's sort of like a universally accepted number, if that's something they're running with, but, you know, to your, um, to your knowledge, is, is that about accurate? Yeah, those are uh, numbers out of the census uh, from the 2016 to 2021 period. Mm. Um, it is, you know, uh, as far as we can tell, fairly accurate as, as accurate as the census, uh, you know, can be. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, either way, uh, whether that number's 250 or 350, it's still too much. And it's it's right. not not a sustainable level of loss um, of agricultural land, particularly prime agricultural land. Only 5% of uh, of our ag land here in Ontario is considered you know, prime. So it's, um, you know, the value of that agricultural land for farming is, is certainly very high. Um, we need to ensure that we can keep as much of it in production as possible going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, try and plan smarter and, and plan plan for the future as best we can um, with a diversity of, of uses across the landscape, both agriculture, urban, uh, and all these types of things. One of the reasons I, well, there are a couple of reasons I wanted to ask. Number one, it, you know, when I read that number, it just seems like such a huge number. And, you know, 319 acres a day. Even again, even if you, as you said, it was like 250, that, that still seems like impossibly, uh, an impossibly huge number to wrap your, red, your head around. Um, and I guess I, I, what, what I'd like to know is number one, I mean, how, how do, how do we know that, or, or how do we know that we're, you know, we're not losing, land at I, I guess we are losing land at an alarming rate i'm trying to wrap my head around how to ask this question but i guess like what assurances that we have that like we're kind of acting to take that number down and number two what are some of the pressures that are resulting in like 319 acres being lost every day is it growth is it you know the the, the loss of land to environmental reasons So uh, I guess I'll take the second one first. There are <laughs> certainly a, a lot of pressures um, on agriculture land right across the spectrum from, from housing to taking land in a conservation um, 
turning land into golf courses and to, you know, landfills. Um, there's lots of uses for land across the landscape. Um, mm -hmm. I think our biggest focus is ensuring that the, uh, the prime ag land stays that way. And, uh, you know, that's been a lot of our, our lobby and our focus over the last few years, for sure. Um, you know, we've, uh, we've seen a lot of pressure put on farmland, um, you know, particularly by this government. Obviously, uh, I mentioned before, we have this housing crisis. We have to deal with that. Uh, we need to find ways to work around some of these issues, but uh, we've been doing our best to try and put forward solutions around, um, you know, building with better density, building around transit hubs, uh, you know, continuing to grow in places that are appropriate to grow and, um, and really put that focus back on preserving prime farmland. And I think, um, uh, with the government's moves here in the last week or so around lot severances, that's certainly a good start. Uh, you know, they mentioned in a, in a letter to us that uh, it's it's a shared goal around preserving prime ag land. And, um, you know, I appreciate that statement from them. And I think uh, that's something that we can certainly work towards going forward in the future and and um, and certainly support uh, support that shared goal and, and continue to, to put good ideas on the table and, and move the agenda forward. And the other piece of this, too, is, as I said, like, how do we sort of stop that leaching, that 319 acres? Is it, you know, I guess I guess I'm looking for an easy answer. I, I imagine there is no easy answer. But just, you know, again, that is such an impossibly huge number. I just wonder, you know, what 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 can be done in, in even just the short term? Just sort of say, like, let's take it down to 300 or, or 250. <laughs> Well, I, I really think it does come back to that uh, earlier statement I made around the provincial policy statement and, you know, ensuring that the language in there is strong on uh, protecting prime ag land class one to four or, you know, the highest class available in a given region. Um, you know, and ensuring that municipalities uh, sort of have an agricultural for agriculture first type of lens on their planning initiatives. Um, and, you know, ensuring that they're identifying and correctly mapping um, agricultural systems in their regions, uh, you know, and ensuring that they have that focus going forward on agriculture. It's a, it's a big business in this province. It's you know, $50 billion in GDP. It's 840,000 jobs or so, agriculture mm -hmm. and food. So it's, uh, it's a huge part of our economy. And, and, uh, and we know that uh, there's a lot of support out there for agriculture and food and, and, uh, it's it's great to see that come together in, in some of these initiatives that we've been working on lately. There's been some commentary. Uh, I won't get you to comment on the commentary, but just that you know, there, there's kind of like an urban focus at the, the provincial level, um, GTA focused. And once you kind of get out into past the GTA where you are around Hamilton, where I am here in Guelph, you're kind of like you are in an urban center, but you're surrounded by farmland. It, it's kind of a bit different from the GTA where you go from sort of like one concrete scape to another Toronto, Mississauga, Oakville, whereas going from, you know, Hamilton to Milton, you're going to be driving past some farms. So I guess, is, is this an example of sort of, I, I guess the, this rural urban divide and that even if you are in an urban setting like Toronto um, or I guess Hamilton and Guelph where you're butting up right up next to farmland, should it be like 
should there be like some matter of policy for for these um, urban governments to be thinking about um, the, the effects of their, I guess, their urbanness on the the surrounding farmland? No, yeah, well, I think we've we've sort of seen that uh, over the last couple of years. I know council here in Hamilton uh, certainly put a big focus on the uh, urban boundary expansion a couple of years ago. Um, you know, Hamilton is uh, about seventy four percent rural, mm-hmm. uh, 20, 25 or six percent urban, and um, they found some ways. You know, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a willingness to go this way off the hop, but they did find some <laughs> ways to 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 grow and uh, and expand uh, within their urban boundary, continue to grow up instead of out. They uh, had put forward some proposals that were ultimately rejected, but uh, they put forward some strong proposals that uh, we're going to have a focus on protecting the, uh, the prime ag land that we have and, uh, and continue to grow and meet the targets of the growth plan going forward. And I think, uh, you know, Halton did some of that same stuff as well, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing that their, their farmland is, is certainly dwindling very quickly. Um, and, you know, they, they needed to meet some challenges of their own and, and they put forward some proposals as well. Uh, ultimately, weren't weren't accepted by uh, the minister of municipal affairs and housing. But mm-hmm. I think there's there, there's some good building blocks there um, mm. for those municipalities to grow and uh, as as they kind of phase into the future. Um, you know, they they certainly know that they need to meet density targets that they need to continue to grow up. Um, but but try and find that balance as they do that to, uh, you know, to utilize that land that they have available in the best possible ways going forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's been a lot, been a lot of work by councils and by, uh, by individuals and, and members of the public and the farm community as well. In in those communities, for sure, Waterloo is another good example mm-hmm. uh, of where they're doing a lot of good work around planning. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we just need to go back to this, this lens that uh, there's only so much land available and mm-hmm. uh, you know we all need to work within the same landscape and um, you know agriculture should be a priority as we move forward yeah and there there was a report from environmental defense that said that we could build uh, a million and a half new units without ever touching green space including agricultural land so um, it, it is doable uh, maybe to wrap up, I'd like to ask you to talk a bit about, you know, sort of your um, where you are as a farmer right now in terms of the things uh, you're you're being challenged with just, you know, every day getting out in your tractor and and uh, and tending the farm. You know, what's you know, what what are the kind of things that keep you up at night? Uh, well, right now it's the dry weather. Yeah. <laughs> um, Certainly, uh, you know, looking for some rain uh, that, you know, farming is a challenging business. It's a risky business. Uh, every day we have to deal with Mother Nature and uh, particularly in, in uh, you know, grain farming, that type of thing. So those are, uh, you know, certainly some of the challenges that we get to deal with. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. Um, urban expansion is certainly one of them. As I mentioned, we, we farm quite a bit of land right around here in Hamilton, the outskirts of Hamilton. and uh, you know, the urban boundary will be moving closer towards us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, we farm some of that land within the boundary. So there's, uh, 
there's potential losses there for our farm and others as well. And, uh, you know, there, there's not more land available. So that makes it challenging to continue to, to build and grow your business. Um, there's, uh, you know, labor challenges are certainly one of them right, uh, right across uh, a lot of farm businesses as well. Um, challenges with housing workers. I know, uh, you know, particularly in greenhouse, the greenhouse sector, mm. uh, ensure, ensuring that they can have appropriate housing for enough temporary workers is uh, is a big challenge for them and getting municipalities on side to allow them to build that temporary housing is uh, is key for them. So, and then, uh, you know, I guess cost of production, uh, inflation, uh, certainly uh, a big concern right across the farm world as well. And, uh, you know, everybody's costs uh, have increased just like the average consumer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're, we're certainly dealing with that reality every day. So, Lots of challenges on the farm, um, but, uh, you know, we continue to, to be optimistic and, and work through them as best we can. Uh, farming is uh, always a constant source of challenge, whether it's the weather, whether it's uh, municipal stuff going on or, or food prices, uh, you're, you're confronted with uh, always something to overcome. So um, I'm, I'm appreciating your, your um, I guess, sort of relaxed uh, approach to tackling these issues. So uh, I won't ho- I won't keep you any longer and let you get back to your farming. But uh, Drew, Sp- Drew Spolstra, thank you so much for all your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Okay. And once again, that was Drew Spolstra of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. And I guess stay tuned. We do have one more week of the... Ontario legislature coming up and then uh, everybody's on summer vacation except us. We'll, we'll be here. We never close. <laughs> we never close. <laughs> uh, what do you want? Uh, you know, we're open 24 hours a day and the second cup of coffee's free. Anyway, stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're also on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire and on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you would like to listen to our show again, you can download it from our website every Monday. You can get it at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or on your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And you can find me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram. You can also check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. And if you're joining us at our usual time on a Thursday, stay tuned for turtle island underground coming up next and that's one of the many great programs that you will hear here on cfru 93.3 fm cfru.ca guelph campus and community radio as for this show open sources guelph we will return next thursday at 5 p.m for another edition and we will see you then